the Eastern and Western Conference Finals are in full swing. What do we think of those matchups? Plus, the Jazz season is over. What went wrong in those final two games? Plus, what can they do in this offseason? And, of course, with more recruits comes more depth for this Utah football team. What is going to be exciting about them coming up this fall season? That's all coming up right now on The Thatcher Effect. Five, four, three, two. You're listening to The Thatcher Effect with your hosts, Nate Thatcher and Richie Osler. Round three is no joke. This is where we separate the pretenders from contenders. Get some skin in the game with DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports. They're offering free-to-play pools every day of the basketball playoffs, offering players a free shot at up to $10,000 in total prizes each day. The best part is that it's free to play. DraftKings free-to-play pools are easy to enter. Just download the DraftKings app, go to pools, and choose from a wide variety of free contests for an opportunity to win cash prizes. All you have to do is answer a handful of questions around what you think is going to happen during that day's basketball games and track your results throughout the evening. Questions will range from which team will hit the most threes to which team will score first. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable so you can deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. Download the top-rated DraftKings app now and use promo code TBPN when you sign up to get your free shot at up to $10,000 in total prizes every day of the basketball playoffs. Head to DraftKings Pools page to get your shot at huge cash prizes. That's promo code TBPN for a limited time only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for full details. So the Jazz's season has come to an end. Super sad um, after all that's gone on. But today we're going to be talking about how it ended, what we thought about the final few games, as well as... um, the potential for these other matchups in the Eastern and Western Conference Finals. These matchups are really interesting, like matchups we did not expect to see at the beginning of the playoffs. So, um, like we always do, we'll start in the East. We have the Bucks and the Hawks. Like, that's a matchup I did not expect at all in the <laughs> East. I know as we were going into the playoffs, um, a lot of the hype was obviously around the Nets. But because of their injuries... Obviously, they were limited in their offensive firepower, and it was left to Kevin Durant, who had a, some miraculous gameplay down the stretch, but it obviously wasn't enough to beat this Bucks team. Then the Hawks go to Milwaukee, and Trey Young has just another fantastic game. And something that I thought was interesting, I believe Reggie Miller was calling that game. He was broadcasting it. And he said that no matter what Trey Young was like before this playoffs, he's going to leave it as a superstar. And Max Kellerman tweeted after that, and he added two more names to that. He added Devin Booker and Donovan Mitchell. And he said, those three, no matter what they enter these playoffs as, they're going to exit as superstars. Richie, what's your take on those three, but especially Trey Young um, as the Hawks go up 1-0 against the Bucks? I mean, Trey Young has been phenomenal. You, I feel like you can't really discredit what Trey Young has done. I mean, there's no, there's no part of where the Hawks are that has been easy. Um, I don't think the Knicks were necessarily an easy matchup in the first round, but they made it look easy. And then the Sixers definitely weren't easy. Trey Young was getting smothered. And the Sixers had are probably better defensively equipped than almost any other team to guard Trey Young. And the Hawks came out of that series. So it's real credit to Trey Young, the player he is, the character he has for him to be um, so successful in this playoffs. And I mean... The Hawks have won game one of every single series so far. 
and they won game one against the Bucks. and Trey Young had 48 points. And the crazy thing to me is the Bucks didn't play a bad game in game one. Um, I feel like Giannis was able to get to his spots. Giannis and the John Collins matchup is interesting because I don't think Collins is um, physical enough to guard Giannis. Um, and I feel like Capella doesn't take anything away at the rim for Giannis. So Giannis kind of, he kind of has an easy matchup in that sense um, compared compared to Blake Griffin, where Blake Griffin was very physical with Giannis um, and making it hard for him at the rim. And so the fact that Giannis kind of had a pretty good game and the Bucks still lost speaks a lot to Trey Young and his ability to um, score as well as be a facilitator. He ended the game with 48 points and 11 assists. I don't, you really can't ask any more from your star player. Um, I mean, that that's just incredible. And I feel like a couple of guys weren't for the Hawks, weren't as good as they could be. Um, Bogdan Bogdanovich has kind of struggled ever since like game three or four against the Sixers. He's had a really bad last couple of games, just isn't able to hit a shot. Um, apparently part of that might be injury. And Gallinari had some rough minutes. Lou Williams didn't play like he did in game seven against the Sixers but the Hawks still came out on top. So I think we're really seeing Trey Young's ascension as a superstar. And I think after this year's playoffs, we're going to be looking at Trey Young and we're going to be like, okay, that's one young guy I would like to have stock in because he's going to have an exciting future. He honestly might be a future MVP and he might win a few championships. I don't know if he keeps playing like this and the Hawks are able to surround him with even better talent, then the sky's the limit for this kid. Yeah. Like going into the playoffs, I think we obviously expected this Hawks team to make like a little bit of a run, but I did not expect them at all to make it this far in the Eastern Conference Finals. And just like you said, they've won every first game of every series, which is very impressive. Um, I I think we're going to see a a very different um, Chris Middleton as well going forward. I think he had a really rough game one, finished like six of like 23 or 24. had 15 points and he also had a a really good chance to send it to overtime um, with a final shot that just came up short, but he had a really good look. I think that's, he's really been the key um, because obviously we know Giannis is going to show up with, you know, big stats. Obviously he's going to be a big board getter um, as well as just running it into the paint. But I think Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday obviously are the keys for that Bucks team scoring wise. Um, Like it just depends on who shows up. And just like you said, like the Hawks, um, at certain times, their shooting has looked impeccable. Um, you look at Gallinari, at Bogdanovich, um, and you just look at this team, and they're another team made completely of shooters. So I'm excited to see where this matchup goes. Obviously, as always, we're going to do this episode or these this show one time a week. So next week, it could be a completely different series. So what is your prediction um, going into next week between the Bucks and the Hawks? I still think the Bucks are going to take this series. Um, in in the last series against Brooklyn, the Bucks usually played like a six-man lineup. It was their starting lineup, um, Middleton, Drew Holiday, Giannis, P.J. Tucker, and Brooke Lopez. And then off the bench, they had Pat Connaughton coming in. And so the whole game, they were pretty much playing those six guys. Um, in game one, they played... Bobby Portis, who I think is a good fit in this series. They also played Bryn Forbes a little bit. The Jeff Teague minutes, I'll never understand. Jeff Teague just isn't that great right now. Um, and they only played Brooke Lopez like 20 minutes that game. 
And I think Brooke Lopez can be more valuable in this series because he'll be able to um, stretch the floor and take Capella out of the paint. And I feel like that's really um, valuable for the Bucks. So I think I think you're going to see some different lineups in game two um, from the Bucks side. And I think ultimately they're going to win game two. And then, I don't know, it seems like it's pretty tough to win in Atlanta these days. Um, yeah, that, it's, so, it's been crazy down in the A. So we'll see how, how the Bucks do in Atlanta. Um, I'm sure they're not happy that they've split at home and then they're taking it. I mean, they've lost one at home. They m- might not even win another. Um, but they're taking it back to Atlanta and it's going to be tough playing there. But I feel like this Milwaukee team has the mental toughness. I think Giannis seems kind of more mentally tough than he has in years past. And I feel like he really has, he's playing like he has something to prove. And I feel like Chris Middleton's kind of the same way. Chris Middleton was phenomenal in the uh, series against the Nets. And I think we're going to see, like you mentioned, a big step up from game one. Um, so ultimately, I think I'm taking the Bucks in this series. I still think it's going to be a big series, though. Um, I'm hoping for seven games. Yeah, I really am, too. Because especially like the Hawks have had very intriguing series, as well as the as well as the Bucks, the Bucks and the Hawks have just had fantastic series over there in the Eastern Conference, mostly because the rest of the conference was just kind of a a shiz show for the most part. But <laughs> um, the Western Conference now, this is where it's really intriguing. Another matchup I did not expect in the slightest. It's a Clippers team without Kawhi Leonard, and the first two games it was also a Suns team without Chris Paul because of COVID protocol. The first game was Devin Booker's superstar game. Just absolute great game from him. Um, and it just seems like he he willed this team to victory. And what surprised me was, especially after playing the Clippers uh, as a Jazz fan, you know, it was it was kind of interesting to see how Ty Lue kind of went back to his big ball lineup instead of playing small ball. Um, you see a little bit more adjustments, and I thought that was interesting. Um, you see, you know, we're starting to see Cousins get minutes again. Um, and... In game two, Zubach had like 34 minutes, which surprised me. And I, I thought going into game three, well, maybe it's going to be the same thing as the Jazz. Uh, the Clippers kind of did the same thing with us. They they kind of played their centers a little bit more in those first two games. And we were able to sneak out, you know, two close wins, which I felt the, uh, the Suns did as well. Crazy buzzer beater, by the way. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. Well, I mean, we see a few things like that. But that was in a playoff environment. That was nuts. Yeah, that was um, nuts. <laughs> Like these, look at the slow mo on the pass from Jay Crowder. He may have that pass was like an inch from hitting the side of the backboard. Just an absolute beautiful lob, one of the best buzzer beaters I've seen in a while. So they win. They win two games. Obviously, Chris Paul comes back, comes out of COVID protocol, going into LA, and I thought they were going to do a small ball lineup, but I was wrong. Ty Lue, his adjustment was he was going to put Zubach in, and they were going to adjust. Um, a little bit more to how their offense um, rotated. So it turns out in this game, like size was the key. Um, Zubach against the Jazz averaged only about 11 minutes of, of game time. Um, and then you go in last night and he just has an incredible game. Like every one of the minutes that he was in, the Clippers were won that by 28 points. And every minute they just spent on the bench, they lost by 14 so he ended up with a double-double, 15, 15 points, 16 rebounds. But I think the biggest key was his defense on the pick and roll. They He limited the, the, the paint offense for that Suns team. 
obviously with Cameron Payne going out, a surprising star for this Suns team in the playoffs. Um, this a surprising cast member. Chris Paul was obviously looking rusty coming off, you know, an 11 day stretch without playing Devin Booker fate. Was it the face mask? I don't know, but he also didn't look too, you know, too into it. What did, what was your takeaway? Cause this looks, this is the same Clippers we've seen in every series so far down. Oh, two come back, have a solid game three win. What was the key adjustments to this one against the Suns? I feel like they played against Chris Paul really well in that game three. Um, one thing they did is they made Chris Paul shoot a lot. And like you said, they were taking away the pick and roll. Um, they weren't giving eight in any easy buckets. Um, and I feel like that's what really pushed them over the edge because Chris Paul didn't have a good shooting game. He shot five of 18, I think. And that's really bad, um, especially for Chris Paul, who's usually an efficient shooter. So I feel like that was the number one key. Um, looking at the Suns minutes, Cameron Payne only played four minutes after having a phenomenal game two and game one. Um, and I think I think if you're Monty Williams, you kind of have to look to try and incorporate um, Cameron Payne more into the lineup. I feel like Cameron Payne has been so good on the offense and he's been good enough on defense where you kind of have to be playing him. Um, Devin Booker, like you said, he did not play a good game. And I think, um, I think the Clippers are really well-equipped to um, kind of combat Devin Booker defensively in that they have Paul George, they have Terrence Mann. Um, if they put Kawhi Leonard, but, I mean, if they have Kawhi Leonard back, he's obviously a great defender. And I just feel like they're really good defensively. And that, that's kind of what they did against the Jazz is they shut down um, our wings and they shut down Donovan Mitchell and everything else kind of seemed to go their way after that. And I think they're kind of trying to do that same thing against the Suns, especially after game one and game two, when Devin Booker had two good performances, um, I think they're going to look to try and shut down Devin Booker in the rest of the series. So a lot of the weight is going to come out of Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton and how well Chris Paul is able to handle the ball, how well he's able to get it to guys like Crowder and Bridges as well as Ayton. And um, I think if they start playing some Cameron Payne minutes, those are going to be important. Um, I also think the Sun should try to look to – play Javon Carter a little bit. Javon Carter is a really high energy guy. Um, he's a great defender. He's super annoying on defense. He's your Patrick Beverly type. And I feel like the Suns kind of need that right now. I think they need somebody to go um, go play, I don't know, just five minutes and just be super energetic. Um, and I don't know, I feel like that kind of swings things their way. Because when the Clippers are down 0-2, it kind of seems like they play with more energy than the other team. And I feel like that's why the Jazz lost, is the Clippers were playing with a lot more energy. Um, and I think if the Suns kind of don't figure out their energy thing and Kawhi Leonard comes back in the next couple of games, the series could easily go the Clippers' way. Yeah. Um, I absolutely agree with you in terms of energy. I, I just It just seems like deja vu to me watching this series. Uh, very similar. And I, in my personal opinion, I think this is going to be, this is going to come down to what happens in game five. Um, my prediction is that next game will, will be a, a closer game, but I still think the Clippers will pull it off uh, by a close margin. I'm just really interested to see what happens when the Suns take it back home. Cause obviously they've been really dominant in Phoenix. Um, I think it was the same situation with the jazz, um, which we can get into the jazz had two fantastic, I mean, 
great games to watch the first two games. Um, as as flawed as you know some aspects of the game were, we were able to pull off these wins, especially with Kawhi Leonard in the game. And then you go to LA and things just seem to blow up in our face. I, me personally, I wasn't too worried because I thought, okay, well, you know, they'll even the series. I'd like to see what happens when we go home if we make any adjustments. But it just seems like Ty Lue is the adjustment king. I've never seen a guy rotate his bench, use all of his different assets more than that guy. And Quinn just seemed to put his line the same, like the same lineup. He just never strayed from a certain strategy to the point where we seem to be, we seem to get beat on, you know, almost on both sides of the ball, unless we were shooting absolutely fantastic. Unless our shooting was off the charts, then this game just didn't seem to be in our favor. Game five, I've never seen better shooting in a first half. Bogdanovich, I think he went like six of six from three, 18 points in the first quarter. Absolutely nuts. We only, I think we're only up by one after that first quarter. Um, we continue fantastic shooting through the second quarter, but again, we're only up five going into halftime. And then things started to kind of blow up in our face in the second half. Uh, you were there. Uh, were you there in game uh, for game five? I was there for game five, yeah. Okay, so what? I, obviously you had a little bit more um, you know, knowledge of what was happening since you were in the arena. What did you get from game five? So looking back at that game, um, in the first half, the Jazz shot 62% um, from three. And that's obviously not sustainable. And the fact that we were only up five was really a telltale that the Jazz weren't going to be able to win that game um, because our defense looked so bad. And you could see our defense looking really bad in the first half. Um, The only difference was they weren't hitting all of their shots. And then in that second half, it seemed like our defense didn't really adjust at all, and the Clippers were still hitting all of their shots, uh, or started to hit all their shots, I should say. Um, I think the big... The big highlight of that game was uh, Paul George. He had a really good performance. Um, that game five, I said, okay, let's put Rudy on Terrence Mann. And, I mean, we'll live and die by the Terrence Mann three-pointer um, because it seems like we weren't able to rotate fast enough. And, I I mean, Terrence Mann didn't have a great game five, but ultimately the Jazz came short. And... Um, I don't know. I just feel like down the stretch, Clarkson wasn't hitting shots. Ingles wasn't hitting shots. Um, Bogdanovich started touching the ball a lot, a lot less. Um, Donovan was hobbling around, and we weren't able to get the ball to Rudy. And and Royce had some really bad decisions and didn't make his shots. So it just seemed like everything went wrong for us in the second half, and everything went right for them in the second half. Um, but I think that's kind of just the way basketball is, and you have to be willing to adjust. Um, you have to be willing to adjust to their shooters, um, who's hot that night. And I feel like that's something the Jazz have just not been good at, is adjusting. It seems like we kind of just get stuck in our same rhythm. Um, we just kind of expect everything to average out. And the truth is, in the playoffs, things aren't going to average out. If a team's hot, they're going to stay hot. And if a team is cold, they might get hot. Um, so you just kind of have to, I don't know, I feel like you just have to be really energetic on defense and this is something I noticed in the sun, for the Suns in the first two games is on all their rotations, they were all fighting through screens. They're trying to contest every single shot. Um, the Clippers were getting a lot of wide open threes like they did against the Jazz. But the difference was the Suns were, were sending a guy running at that wide open three or sending a guy running to the next guy. So they couldn't um, immediately pass to another wide open three. And I feel like 
that's something the Jazz never did. It just seems like we didn't have guys that were just running to get to that three-pointer. Um, it seems like every time they passed the ball to the guy Rudy was on, Rudy just kind of waited in the paint. And truthfully, looking at it, that's not going to win you a championship. Um, and that's not going to – I don't know. It didn't even get us past the second round. So you look at the Jazz and it's like, okay, you know, maybe it's time to kind of switch things up. Yeah, I I agree exactly with that because Rudy was just seemed it just seemed a little bit underwhelming with what he was dealt and how he was given what he what he got in that second round series. Obviously, like we said, because the Clippers went small ball on him and they're they're passing on offense. They they just found open shots on almost all of their possessions, usually in the corner because that's where Rudy was guarding. Um, you talked about Terrence Mann in Game Five. Boy, did he have a Game Six. Um. The first half, like in my mind, and I'm sure all of the Jazz fans thought this as well, like that was, that was, this was Jazz basketball in my mind. I said, great, this is usually how we play. There was a lot of ball movement on offense. I loved how everyone was getting shots. Clarkson goes off, and uh, that was crazy. I think he had 17 straight points for the Jazz. Um, and then you have Donovan, of course, with that killer mentality. It just obviously, you knew he was hurting, and it boggled me. Uh, cause Mike Breen and, and, uh, Van Gundy and Mark Jackson were calling the game. Mark Jackson, uh, Donovan had a crazy Euro layup. I think it was on Nicholas Batum, just a great Euro step. And he's like, Oh, he's not really injured. You know, he's it, no, no injured guy can do a Euro step like that. But for us as jazz fans, obviously even looking at that play, you can tell he's injured because Donovan has hop. I mean, he won the slam dunk contest. The dude can jump. But he just didn't seem to have that elevation, obviously, with that ankle injury. But he was still just finding ways to get to the paint. And even with that major injury, it although it seemed like maybe he changed his shot selection a lot, like looking back at the statistics, the percentages show that he basically shot the same amount in the paint as he usually did without, um, without that ankle injury. The only difference was he was shooting absolutely insane sometimes from three. And that kind of continued in this game, in this game six. The Jazz go up, man. This is this is devastating. It's really hard to talk about. The Jazz are up twenty five though in the third quarter, and then the Clippers go on an absolute tear and end up outscoring the Jazz by almost forty points. They just switch the table. I've never seen anything like it. Um, obviously a little a little uh hard to watch, and I'm sure absolutely for the players they said the exact same thing. Game six, what's going through your mind as the Jazz are losing their lead? Um, what what did you get out of that one? I mean, because that one's tough to look at, but you know, looking back at game six, what do you get from that one? Um, so I remember watching this game and I said, you know, the Jazz are gonna live and die by the Terrence Mann three, just like I said with game five. Um, Terrence Mann's third quarter was the swinging point for the Clippers because Terrence Mann had, had a really good third quarter. Um, end of the game with 39 points. And I feel like that's what really took the Jazz out of the game. And the fact that we never adjusted to it. We never tried to put a different guy onto Terrence Mann. Because a lot of times the Clippers were running a lineup with Rondo or Patrick Beverly. And if I'm Quinn Snyder, I'm, I'm looking at those two guys and I'm saying, okay, if we're going to play Rudy, I want Rudy on one of those two guys. Because they're probably not going to hit their shots as often as Terrence Mann will. Um, I don't know. Playoff Rondo might, might be different, might, might sway my mind on that. But um, I, I feel more confident about them missing their shots. But ultimately 
it seemed like the Jazz lost their effort in that second half. Um, and I feel like that's kind of been the story of the whole series is effort. And, I mean, I feel like when you're under-equipped um, kind of defensively and maybe offensively too, it really comes down to how hard are your guys going to play. Um, Donovan played really hard. And none of you can't blame Donovan for anything that happened in the series because he was phenomenal. And credit to what Max Kellerman said, Donovan is leaving the super this playoffs as a superstar. Um, looking at Mike Conley, Mike Conley said he felt like he was 30% that game. So he was at 30%. So you can't put any blame on Mike. Um, Rudy Gobert did just about as much as you could have asked. He's just put in a hard position um, that wasn't what he's used to. And so I think if you're the Jazz, you really have to try to get Rudy used to playing small ball. Um, and ultimately, it comes down to who you surround Rudy with, um, with how good he's going to be on defense. I've always thought that defense and defensive player of the year and all defensive teams comes down to how many guys you have that are good on defense. This year, the, set, the Sixers had the number one defense, and they had three guys on all defense on all defensive teams. They had Embiid, Simmons, and Thibault. And I think that speaks a lot to how good their defense was. Um, looking at the Jazz, we had one guy on all defense. Um, we had four guys get votes, but I don't know who was voting for Mike Conley or Donovan Mitchell to get votes for all defense. I don't think either of them uh, deserved it. And Royce O'Neal, you can make a case, but ultimately they're better defenders than Royce O'Neal. So... Looking at that, like you can't depend on Rudy for all of your defense because it is too exposable. We've seen this in the last the last four or five years, it seems like. Um, last year against the Nuggets, they figured us out. And to be fair, Rudy had a decent series against the Nuggets. The Jazz team as a whole, it just seemed like we collapsed. Um, series against the Rockets the year before, Harden and Capella pick and roll, unstoppable. Rudy gets Rudy gets exposed on that every single time, um, and when you and when that wasn't working, they just go small ball and they stretch Rudy out to the three with PJ Tucker, and then Rudy isn't able to do his thing inside. And I feel like we're just kind of seeing a theme and a pattern where Rudy isn't good enough to play in the playoffs, where we're getting exposed, and the narrative of Rudy kind of becoming exposed is becoming true. But I don't think it's all on Rudy. I still think it's a lot on how you play Rudy. So if I'm Quinn Snyder, I think a lot of this is on me. And I'm looking at how I need to change um, the roster, the personnel for the next for the next year so that you can get the most out of Rudy. Because when it's all said and done, Rudy is a phenomenal defender and he has great potential to be even better. But I feel like it's all a lot of it is going to come to how well you prepare him and the other guys on the team to play against these lineups. Yeah, I absolutely agree that it's on really on adjustments because Ty Lue, like we said, he's the adjustment king right now. And you may say that that's credit to his his depth that he has on his bench. But at the same time, I think he's really noticing what he's going up against with these different teams and he's finding ways to expose them. And I think he really found that with Rudy. I think having Rudy on the floor, obviously, no matter if he's having a good game or a bad game, is obviously influential. You see, like, certain guys, the same thing. They're, they don't want to select certain shots that they probably would have with other centers or other guys at the five. Uh, I, You know, just from memory, you see a lot from 
as much as Paul George still attacked Rudy Gobert, there were certain instances, especially in the fast break, when he didn't want to go into the paint, he'd have to kick it out for three. Obviously, that was really frustrating to see Rudy on Terrence Mann when he's having a career game, um, the best game of his life, and you're having your you know seven-foot center literally just standing in the paint, not even watching. Really tough. Um, which, which brings me to my next, my next question, which is obviously now it's the off season for the jazz and there has to be some sort of, of change up here. I understand that the jazz in the past few years have really valued the, um, the characteristic of team chemistry, wanting to keep guys together. And obviously it looks like this unit really loves playing together. Uh, the big question is obviously going to be about Mike Conley. Um, as as his contract's up, he's he's obviously passed his prime, but really good year this last year for the Jazz. I think he really found his stride compared to his first year with us, um, to where you know it just seemed like he wasn't really there until the bubble. Um, what do you think we do with Mike Conley? And not only that, are there any potential trades or free agents that you think the Jazz would benefit from picking up in the offseason? So you have to re-sign Mike Conley. Um, whether we sign him or not, we don't have enough space for another point guard. So it's kind of like must sign Mike Conley. Um, it'll be interesting to see how much money Mike Conley wants, uh, this next year and these next couple of years. Um, I think Conley's going to stick around and I think the jazz are looking to re-sign him. If you can get 50 games a year from him, um, and he's healthy for the playoffs, you're getting your dollars worth at least for the next couple of years. Um, and so I think the Jazz kind of have to look at that and say, okay, is Mike going to be healthy next playoffs? Um, or do we need to try and do a sign and trade? And I think that's another option that the Jazz have. The Jazz, truth be told, are in win now right mo- are in win right now mode. Um, looking at their contracts, you have Joe Ingles for the next two years. You have Bogdanovich for another three years. You have Clarkson for another three years. You have Royce or Rudy and Donovan for the next four years, Royce for another two years. So the Jazz, looking at their salary cap and their salary table, have made very clear that this is their window. Um, whether or not they choose to capitalize on that is going to be interesting. I think there will be conversations in the front office about, um, especially with Donovan, like, is this the roster you want around you? Or do you want us to try and trade some pieces, get some future assets, and wait a couple of years to go into win now mode? Um, I think that'll be a conversation that's had. And I don't necessarily think Donovan is the type of player to kind of wait. It seems like he wants to win right now. And then you have to look at okay, well, we haven't been able to win the couple the last couple of years. What do we need to change? And I think there's two things you gotta change. The first thing is you need better wing defenders. Um, looking at Phoenix, they have Torrey Craig. They got Torrey Craig for nothing. And Torrey Craig has played a good series for them. He's a high-energy guy. He plays with a lot of um, a lot of emotion, as well as he's just a really good defender, and he's a good enough shooter where you can play him 20, 30 minutes a game. And so I think you have to look at Torrey Craig and be like, okay, that's kind of who the guy – that's the type of guy – that the Jazz need, either to start or come off the bench. Um, another name I really like is OG Ananobi, and I think it's going to be interesting to see what the the Raptors try to do this next offseason. I think the Jazz could 
assemble a good trade package for OG and Anobi. Um, I know Jazz fans aren't going to love me for saying this, but Jordan Clarkson has decent tra- trade value. Um, you could look to trade Clarkson for OG Ananobi and Rodney Hood, and then you're bringing back um, a decent bench scorer and a really good wing defender. So I think the Jazz just have to l- try to look at all these trades. We could also try to do a sign-in trade and get Marcus Smart um, and start having, I don't know, have a better guard defender. And I don't know. There, there's a lot of the options that the Jazz have. I think in the front office, they're exploring everything they possibly can. Free agency starts in like the next three or four weeks. Um, and then the draft is in the next four weeks as well. And it'll be interesting to see if the Jazz try to make any moves during this time. Um, personally, as a Jazz fan, I'm kind of skeptical about the future. I'm skeptical a little bit about our front office. But at the same time, I have more confidence in Ryan Smith to make the necessary moves to adjust than I have in, I've had in our past owners because Ryan Smith has shown that he is willing to play all of the cards and that he's willing to do everything possible to get to get guys to come here. And I think Dwayne Wade is a really attractive thing for a lot of NBA players because they look at him. He's a guy with championship experience. He's a guy that um, is also just trying to bring guys into the into Utah to make us a better team. So, I mean, you kind of look at those. And it's like, okay, Utah is not a horrible destination. And honestly, nine players out of 10 that come to play here probably like it. And so I think as a Jazz fan, you can be skeptical about the future, but you have the perfect ownership right now for the future um, because they're willing to pay the big bucks. They're willing to go into the luxury for guys. And I think you might be able to make a free agency pitch to some of these uh, minimum mid-level exception guys better in Utah than you can almost anywhere else. Yeah. Dwayne Wade has been a crucial part, um, not only because of his relationship with Donovan Mitchell, but I think him and Ryan Smith together can be able to change the perception around the Utah Jazz um, around the league. Like you said, I think most of the players that come and play for the Jazz they love it and they rarely actually hate it. I think the only person I can think of is Enos Cantor. Um, Vernon Maxwell. Yeah. And Vernon Maxwell. <laughs> um, and, and Vernon makes it known on Twitter, but I, like you said, I just think most people love it when they come to play here. I think there's just a stigma around a, you know, a small market team um, and a, a city that doesn't have as big of a buzz as LA or New York. Um, but I think Dwayne Wade and Ryan Smith have a chance to change that here, especially in their first off season as, as owners now, um, to really see what they can pull off. Uh, I think it's interesting. I think Mike Conley is going to really try and explore his options. I obviously, I believe that his preference would be coming back with the jazz. I think it's best for both parties, but I think now he actually has a lot of value more than maybe even more than he did in the past being an all-star now. Um, so I think he'll have a lot of, um, chances to explore other options with other teams. But I obviously believe that in the end, he'll, he'll come back and play for the jazz. Cause I just think um, that was, he was the difference in, in this year's season. Uh, you have to have at least three big scoring options on a championship team. And that was provided with obviously three all-stars in Gobert, Mitchell and Conley. And I think going forward, Mitchell's got to be the guy that you look to of, of who he wants on his team. I think now being the the central figure of the jazz 
Um, it has to go through him and what's comfortable with with him on offense and on defense. I really like um, your proposals uh, for trade packages. So if anyone else wants to see what Richie's thinking, follow him on Twitter, Richie Sports Three. That guy's got some he's got some <laughs> knowledge in there. Um, it would be interesting to see Rodney Hood come back, come off the bench. Uh, obviously, he had some interesting games with the Jazz. Uh, where he just seemed to never miss. But for the most part, it just kind of seemed like he was a little bit of a kind of maybe scared of the the, the big moments. Um, but OG Ananobi, I've loved that. I love watching that guy play basketball. I'd love to see him come to the Jazz. As much as I would hate to see Jordan Clarkson leave, like you said, there's, there's a lot of guys on this Jazz team that do have trade value. Obviously, because of the different opportunities that they give us on offense, we have a lot of different guys that can just show up on any given night. And I think that gives us a lot of options in this offseason. Um, all right, we'll finish off really quick. Utah football, man. I feel like every week we got something new with these guys. Uh, the new end zone just about to finish up. That's getting me hyped, but more than anything, we had some really big pickups in this last week. And I think the biggest comes from an elite 11 finalist. Nate Johnson decided to commit to Utah over Michigan. Dude is freaky fast guys. I don't think I've ever seen a quarterback, um, coming out of high school that's as fast as Nate Johnson. A few days after his commitment, maybe it was a day after, he ran in his district 100-meter yard race, uh, or 100-meter race. He won that by running a 10.5. Like a 10.5, 100-meter. That's crazy Jeez. fast. Um, recruiters and his coaches say he also has a dynamite arm. Uh, looking at film, he's got a really good deep ball. Um, some of the cons that his coach has said is really just his, um, his, you know, his motion of his throw is a little bit slow. They kind of want to quicken that up. And also they want him to use his legs more in game time. As fast as he is, he does seem to be a little bit more of a pocket type QB and they really want to see him, uh, get on the run. Cause when you look at the film, man, when that kid runs, dude's got wheels, um, which makes really interesting conversation because I feel like Kyle Whittingham has been able to develop players that come out of high school not highly touted i feel like utah is a team that brings in in-state or, or california two-star three-star guys and they're able to just really fit them into utah system make them look good and send them straight to the nfl but now utah's getting guys that are four stars um i mean we even had a five star in clark phillips and now with this added depth coming out of high school, there's just so much more potential for the added development that Utah can bring to these players. Kyle Whittingham said this, this team in some aspects might be the deepest team he's had. Um, I think uh, Phil, Steel, Phil Steele's preseason rankings had Utah's offensive line at number five in the country. Alabama was at number six. So I think that's kind of cool to see Utah ahead of Alabama in one category, <laughs> but you look at all positions and it just seems like they've, they might really have a shot. Um, obviously I think most people are favoring USC to win the South per usual. Um, but Richie, what are your, what are your predictions? What are you thinking of these pickups for the Utes? Um, how do you think they're going to be doing coming up in this next season? Man, I'm, I'm so excited about this next season. Um, going from the end of a depressing jazz season to an exciting Utah football future. It seems like something we've done a million times before, but um, I'm really excited about it. Um, the way that we've been able to recruit some of these guys, I think speaks to a lot of the development of our program and how we've kind of evolved over the last couple of years with Nate Johnson. 
um, Utah was like the very first school to be to offer him a scholarship. And so when you kind of start getting these guys young and you're there, like recruiting them right off the bat, like right when they start getting um, good and you can kind of see how good they're going to be in a couple of years. I think that's really important for a school because it seems like um, a lot of these recruiters are there when kids are like 14, 15, and then they're kind of just there the whole way. And the kids are like, well, they've been there long enough. Like I know what they're about and I've seen their program the last couple of years um, and I'm going to go there. And so I think that's something really critical that the youths have done. And um, I feel like that's going to be something big in the future. As far as looking at our roster next year, I mean, we're deep. We're we're really dang deep. And it's so fun because you have so many options in so many different places. Um, Our quarterbacks, you have a lot of options. Our running backs, you have options. And we've replenished our wide receiver core, and which was I feel like was a big question um, going into um, this next season. And so, I mean, the youths have done everything you can ask for them to do in an offseason to get ready for the next season. And looking at this year, looking at the next couple of years, it's hard to say that, you know, we won't have a good shot at winning the Pac-12 title in the next couple of years because we're deep and we're also really young, um, which I think helps us a lot. Yeah, I think this youths team is really starting to look like other top tier programs in the country. Um, I mean, you're looking at the the top of the you know nation standings and you know it's usually the Clemson Alabama Ohio State and those teams that usually almost always go to the playoff they're young guys right it seems like they're kind of like the Duke basketball of college football where you get the really good recruits out of high school you can be able to help them you know help them out with their game a little bit in you know one two maybe three years and then you're able to send them off to the NFL and I think Utah's starting to get these guys that really have just natural athleticism and talent and that was something I was talking about with Nate Johnson is you can't you can't teach athleticism. Um, that's just something, you know, these kids are born with. And I think with Nate Johnson, right, like you can't teach the type of speed he has or the type of, you know, um, the deep, deep passes he can make. What you can do is help him to be able to to concentrate his skills as a quarterback and then use that athleticism to his advantage. Um, some people say they're wondering why all these new recruits are deciding Utah over other Pac-12 schools. I wanted to get your take because um, obviously, again, kind of the same thing with the Jazz as an outsider perspective. You look at these guys, right? Salt Lake City, not that crazy of a destination compared to you've got, you know, USC or UCLA in Southern California. You've got, um, you know, maybe ASU and Tempe. Oregon has, you know, all those amazing facilities, obviously, with their partnership with Nike. Um, Washington has great facilities and a great location. What What would make, I guess, if you were a recruit, what would stand out to you about Utah? So there's a couple things. Um, I think the fact that players are willing to move to Tuscaloosa to play football um, kind of shows you that location isn't as as important as you think it is. Um, that being said, I do think uh, the Utes have a great – we do have a really good facility. We have a gorgeous campus on the University of Utah, and I feel like those are two big factors that um, kind of play into where players want to play. But ultimately, I think the biggest factor is looking at the success of the team um, and more uh, more specifically, the success of individual players. And the Utah had a lot of success with individual players as far as getting them into the NFL. And I mean, even we even have a lot of players 
that don't get drafted, but still make their way into the NFL. And that speaks a lot to how good our player development program is. So if I'm a young guy, it's like, okay, I could live in Southern California. I could go live by the beach and stuff, but I could also just work my way to an NFL contract and then go live by the beach. And (laughs) I don't know. So I feel like a lot of these players are just, are they're willing to sacrifice that. And they come and they look at Utah. They're like, okay, um, this guy, this team has had a lot of players drafted in the NFL and they have a lot of guys that are contributors in the NFL and that are star players. Um, And so me, where I'm a super, uh, super athletic person, I want to be one of those guys in the NFL. And I know that Utes, the Utes are going to give me the right tools to put me into that spot. And I think that is probably the most attractive thing about playing at Utah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think if you look at their facilities, they have to be at least at the top of the conference. Um, but I think especially as recruit, and I think that's something that Utah does a lot with their their recruits is they're really telling them, we can really develop you and we have a, a really good shot at getting you to the NFL. Um, you look back at this last year, Utah didn't have anyone go to the draft at all. Um, obviously, we had some potentials with Devin Lloyd and and others. But yet, even after all the other Pac-12 teams had players drafted this last year, we're still number two in the conference over the last like seven years in terms of players drafted, um, even though we didn't have anyone, which is crazy to think about that. And I think we're only we only have one less draft draftee than Washington, even though they had a few this past year, which was crazy to think about. I really, again, disappointing loss for the Jazz, but something that's awesome is because that season started late, we have a really short offseason um compared to uh now two months away we're into utah football and then just a few months after that we're right back into jazz basketball so i know we usually end it saying it's a great time to be a jazz and a Utes fan i still think it's a great time <laughs> to be a Utes fan we have potential right jazz fans like like richie said i think it's i think it's do or die uh, i think it's a time to win um very interesting to see what happens in the offseason i love to see trades and the changes that are going to be going on around the league but it's exciting. I'm really excited to see what happens with the Utes. Obviously, we'll have more news the closer we get to the season. But this is a deep team. Uh, it's, it's a good time to, to be a Utes fan. So uh, we'll catch you next week. Hopefully, we got some more exciting stuff to talk about. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Richie and I would like to thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Thatcher Effect. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to future episodes and invite your friends and family to join us on the ride on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you'd like to hear more about our episodes, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Thatcher Effect Podcast. We'd like to thank Money Wizard for the intro music and the Basketball Podcast Network for hosting us. We'll see you next week.